Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. We will be picking up things in verse 7 this morning of Romans 11 and the goal of getting through verse 24. Well, something my sister Betsy initiated a few years back was developing a family testament uh, where we all as a family wrote out stories of God's faithfulness in our, in our lives uh, with the purpose of not only being able to recount God's faithfulness ourselves and give thanks to him for all his faithfulness to us, uh, which might be something for good for you to think about doing even this week as we think about being thankful to God and, and recounting his faithfulness to us these, this past year. But not only did we do that and write out this family testament for ourselves, but also then for future generations to be able to read about God's faithfulness to their grandparents and their parents and their aunts and uncles and cousins. And while I think that that is a good thing to do and a healthy thing for families to do, you should consider doing it yourself. My point in bringing it up is that what we're going to learn in Romans 11 is that this, our Bibles, God's Word, is also a family testament to us and for us as well. What we're going to see this morning is that we as Gentile believers have been grafted into the olive tree of the people of God. And we are being built upon the promises and blessings that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as we see Paul lay out the storyline of redemptive history in Romans 11... We are hopefully being struck with God's faithfulness to his people. But what we'll note in Romans 11 is that we'll see God's faithfulness play out in both his kindness and in his severity. And that will be a key verse for us this morning, Romans 11, 22, which says, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Last week, we learned that God is faithful to his people in all seasons, even when we can't see it, and that God will always choose and keep a people for himself by grace through faith. We learned then that receiving and enjoying God's grace each and every day provides us a remedy to our fear and our fatigue and our pride that blinds us from seeing God's faithfulness in our lives. And we hopefully then last week came to appreciate just how glorious it is to be a part of the people of God who are chosen and kept by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And therefore now, in light of the faithfulness of God, this morning we are going to be exhorted today to continue to live by faith. If you remember back in Romans, earlier in one of the sermons in Romans, I explained that this is what it means to live by faith. It means to humbly trust God in all things. To humbly trust God in all things. We see God's kindness and his severity throughout history. And that through both his kindness and his severity, he is working all things together for the good of those who love him and who are a part of the family tree. So look with me now at Romans uh, 11, starting in verse 7. 
God's word says, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Now, in verses 5 and 6, Paul has just said that God has kept a remnant of his people who have been chosen by grace. And then he says here in verse 7, however, that Israel as a whole has failed to obtain the righteousness of God. The elect or the believers obtained it, but Israel as a whole failed to obtain it because they pursued it by works and they didn't pursue it by grace through faith. And therefore, here we see some of the severity of God and that God hardened them and spiritually blinded them. Paul goes on to quote from Isaiah 29 and Deuteronomy 29 in verse 8. And he says, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. He then quotes David from Psalm 69. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Now, Paul is not necessarily teaching us anything new that we haven't already covered through Romans. What he's essentially saying is that we must note the severity of God in that at times he does turn people over to their sinful desires. We saw this back in Romans 1 where we learned that one of the ways the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven is when God gives people up to the lusts of their own hearts. We saw this back in Romans 9 when we talked about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. The only thing God has to do to harden a sinner's heart is to remove all restraints and turn them over to what their own sinful desire and sinful heart wants. And this is why I think that quote from John Stott is so helpful, and we'll have it up on the screen. That's why I've quoted it throughout Romans 9 through 11. I do believe this is what God's Word teaches, that if therefore anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. But if anybody is saved, the credit is God's. You see, sadly, there will be some who will continue their whole life in persistent and defiant unbelief. And at some point, God gives them over to what they want. And oh, may that not be true of anyone in here. Please, Lord. Paul is teaching us here that in the same way that God turned people over to their desires in Romans 1, a similar thing has happened with Israel. The reason that up until this point the majority of Israel has rejected Christ is because they did not pursue the righteousness of God by faith. And therefore, a judicial hardening from God has come upon them. God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear. Note the severity of God here. God, in some circumstances, allows people to eat their own cooking. Now, to maybe lighten things up a bit, because this is some heavy stuff, uh, I remember growing up when Betsy and I were on our own, we would sometimes have to 
make our own meals and then eat our own cooking. And, uh, and, and, and conversing back with her, there were some interesting things we developed. Uh, I really thought tuna and a peanut butter sandwich would go together, and it really did not. It was not good. Uh, Betsy remembers mixing bread and oranges in a bowl of milk and thinking that this was going to taste good, and it was horrible. It was horrible, okay? It is clear and obvious to some of us that it is not good to eat our own cooking, okay? But God has allowed some people to eat their own cooking. Now, here's the really dangerous thing about this truth, though, and that is some people are actually pretty good at cooking. You see, a lot of the Jews were religiously pretty good cooks, meaning that they could cook up the appearance of faith and trust in God and that they were good religious people, even though they were mainly concerned with their own power, their own position, their own righteousness. They were seeking the glory that came from man and not the glory that comes from God. Oh, but they looked so good cooking it up, didn't they? They looked so much better than the people around them. And God, for a time, has said, fine, if you don't think you need me, if you don't think you need grace, if you think you can obtain righteousness on your own, you can eat your own cooking. And so this is where many Jews are today. This is where many religious people are today. This is where many church-going people are today. Those who have not received righteousness through faith in Christ, but have sought to establish their own, like David said, their backs are bent forever. They carry this burden and weight that only Christ can bear. Now listen, church, when it comes to your righteousness, when it comes to standing right with God, you do not want to eat your own cooking. At the marriage supper of the Lamb, no one is going to want your homemade egg salad. Okay. When you see the cooking of Christ, you quickly realize that even your most righteous deeds that you cooked up are like filthy rags in his sight. Even your good work does not compare to Christ's righteousness. At church, we cannot pursue a rightness with God apart from Christ. No one can. It is only through humbly trusting him in all things for our life and salvation and for our righteousness that now we have eyes to see and ears to hear and no longer bear a burden of guilt on our backs. But a temporary hardening has come upon Israel. God has given them over to eat their own cooking, so to speak. Note the severity of God. But the question then is, is this a permanent or final hardening? And Paul says, no, not at all. This is all a part of God's plan of salvation for the world. Look now with me at verse 11, Romans 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. 
Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, typically when we read about jealousy in the Bible, it's usually not a good thing, but there are some exceptions. Uh, Because there are times where it's not always sinful to be jealous. For example, there are scriptures referring to God being jealous for his people. You see, whether or not jealousy is sinful depends on the nature of what is desired and whether or not you have a right to it or not. For example, wanting your neighbor's truck, house, or spouse is sinful and wrong because you have no right to those things. But what Paul is saying here is that as the Gentiles flood into the kingdom by receiving the true king, as they experience the blessings of the new covenant and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, many of the non-believing Jews are going to see this and they're going to want it. And that is a good kind of jealousy. It's essentially a jealousy for Jesus. And we've seen this play out to some degree on a small scale, but at some point in history, we're going to see this play out on a large scale as well. And to give you an example of how this has played out on a small scale, um, I'll share with you the story of Dr. Charles Feinberg. Uh, Dr. Charles Feinberg, he lived back in the ni- you know, lived in the 1900s. He was a university professor and scholar. He was a theologian, and he was an Orthodox Jew. And because he was an Orthodox Jew and his household uh, uh, was an Orthodox Jewish household, they had hired a Sabbath Gentile, which I guess is a thing if you're really trying to acknowledge the Sabbath and you have the means to hire someone to come in and do the work and serving you through the Sabbath. They had hired a Sabbath Gentile, and this was a Gentile woman who would come and do work for them, um, but she was also a Christian. And she, was also, she had also been praying for this family, that they would come to receive Christ and, and, and put their faith that Jesus is the Messiah. He is their Savior and Lord. And so she's praying for them, and she's serving them every Sabbath. And Dr. Feinberg was struck with the joy and the love and the grace that he saw in this woman's life. And he wanted that. He wanted that. And it was in seeing Christ in this woman that opened up his eyes to see Christ in all the scriptures. This Gentile believer had made him jealous for Jesus. And he then came to believe that Jesus is the Messiah he had been waiting for. And so a quick point of application for us, a quick question for you would be, Are we living our lives in such a way that people around us are becoming jealous for Jesus? I know I've shared this before with you, but one of the main things I remember from my childhood and growing up experience was seeing my mom and dad and and their walk with the Lord, their time in the Word, their time in prayer, and seeing their joy in Jesus and thinking, I want that. Like whatever they have, that's what I want. They made me jealous for Jesus. Church, do your neighbors and friends and family, do they see the joy and grace and love of Christ in your life and think 
I want that. Kids, I know we've got a lot of kids in here. Kids, do your teammates and do your friends and do your neighbors see something different in you, in how you play, in how you encourage, in how you handle tough things? Do they see your joy in Jesus and think, I want that? This is one of the ways believers are to evangelize the world, make people jealous for Jesus. Be happy in Christ and make people jealous for Jesus. Paul's saying, note the severity of God. He's given many unbelieving Jews over to what they sinfully desired, but God's not done with the Jews, just like he's not done with the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are going to make the Jews jealous for Jesus, which will result at some point in a great multitude of Jews coming to faith in Christ. Look back at now verse 12, Romans 11, verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Okay, what he's doing here, he's laying out some of redemptive history and God's sovereign plan of salvation for the world. He's laying out how Jesus is going to be the savior of both Jews and Gentiles. Now, many of the first century Jews had rejected Jesus. And Paul typically, when he got to a town or a city, he typically started his preaching in the synagogue when he would would arrive. Now think about it. If revival would have broken out in all those synagogues, what could have happened is that the gospel might have been only perceived as being only for the Jews and Jesus only a savior for the Jews. But what was happening in the first century and what has continued into today is that the majority of the Jews had rejected Jesus and therefore the gospel went to the Gentiles. And so many of the Gentiles believed and came to faith in Christ. And these riches of Christ have come to the Gentiles as both part of the sovereign plan of God and because of the trespass of the Jews in their unbelief. I mean, talk about a glorious example of what the enemy meant for evil, God meant for good. Or an example of how God's sovereignty and human responsibility are both playing out. The Jews who were responsible for their unbelief and their rejection of Jesus, it actually brought the riches of Christ to the Gentiles. And here we see Paul make another much more argument. All right, in verse 12, you'll see those words, much more. Throughout Romans, he's, he's used this much more line of argue, argument where he's saying, if this one thing is true, how much more will this other thing be? How much greater will this other truth be? And he says in verse 12, if Israel's failure means riches for the Gentiles, 
how much more will their full inclusion mean? You see, there will be a time in the future when there will be revival amongst the Jewish people coming to faith in Christ. Many Jewish people have already come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. This is happening, but we haven't seen it yet on a widespread, massive revival level yet. But Paul is saying, hey, you Gentiles, if you think their unbelief benefited you, wait until a great multitude of them come to faith in Christ. How much more will this be a blessing for you when a great multitude of Jews come to faith in Jesus Christ? The day is coming. And no one knows exactly how everything is going to precisely play out leading up to the return of Christ. But this we know, and we'll see it again and talk about it again next week in verse 25, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and then there will be a great revival of Jews who come to faith in Christ. And this will result in a great blessing for our world. But lest you think this passage is just giving us big picture view of how redemptive history plays out concerning Jews and Gentiles, Paul is now going to get down on a personal level and try to help Jews and Gentiles, both in the Roman church and here today in, in, in the current church, to let us see how we should be relating to one another. As well as Paul is going to give us a direct warning that we must hear in these next verses. Look with me now at verse 16, Romans eleven sixteen. He says, If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud. But fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Verse 22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Okay, so Paul here is using the illustration of the olive tree. Uh, which these Roman Christians and anyone familiar with some of the Old Testament prophetic writings understand that the olive tree is symbolic of Israel. Okay, The olive tree, or you could say the olive tree, is symbolic of the people of God. Right? 
Paul is teaching the Gentile Roman believers that God has not planted them on a separate tree that consists of Gentile believers. Paul's teaching that there's not, hey, here's, here's God's plan for the Jews, and then here's an entirely separate plan from the Gentiles. No, he is saying this is one tree. One tree. One people of God consisting of Jew and Gentile believers. And he tells the Gentiles, hey, because of the unbelief of many of the Jews, those branches have been broken off and you have been grafted in. You see, there were times in the early church of hostility and conflict between Jews and Gentiles. And therefore, one of the main themes of the New Testament is not how Jews and Gentiles need to be more distinct or more hostile to one another, or that God has two separate people groups. No, one of the main themes of the New Testament is how Jew and Gentile are being brought together in Christ. That Gentile believers have been grafted into the olive tree. And that they now share in the nourishing root, meaning that they now share in the promises and blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that were ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Believing Gentiles have not taken the place of the Jews, but they have been grafted in with the people of God to share in these promises and blessings that all find their fulfillment in Christ. And this is not just an isolated theme found in Romans 11. We see it in almost all of Paul's letters. For example, when he writes to the Ephesians, which we'll have this up on the screen, Ephesians 2, 11. This is a longer passage, but I think it's, it's important in light of what we're learning in Romans 11 to hear, hear all of what uh, Paul writes here to the Ephesians. Ephesians 2, 11. He writes, Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Then in writing to the Galatians, just a a couple verses here, Paul writes, 
in Galatians 3, verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Church, do you see the kindness and goodness of God to graft the Gentiles into the people of God? Oh, what grace. Some of us who were last have come first to receive the righteousness of God. We have now been adopted into the household of God. We who were once orphans, now through Christ, we are sons and daughters. And this will be one of the songs that we respond with after the sermon. We're going to praise God that we are now adopted into the family of God. We are now children of God. We've been grafted into this family tree. And so no longer do we have to fear being abandoned or being rejected or being left alone to our own devices and desires. No, by God's grace through faith in Christ, we are children of God grafted into the family tree of the household of God. So please, church, do not throw out your Old Testament. Do not get rid of Jewish writings and your Jewish Savior. No, God had promised to Abraham that he was going to work through this family to bring blessings to the world. And it is all of these blessings in Christ that we come to behold and enjoy this morning. What a glorious truth. But now in light of that truth, Paul gives us a warning. Look back at Romans 11, verse 20. We must hear this warning. Romans eleven twenty. 20, he says, That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Yes, we've just seen God's kindness in the riches of Christ going out to the Gentiles and adopting believers into this family. We've seen his kindness and how the Gentiles' joy in Jesus is going to make the Jews jealous for Jesus. We've then seen this, his kindness when a great multitude of Jews come to faith in Christ that it's going to result in a widespread blessing for our world. But don't forget about the severity of God. He still disciplines those he loves. And this is where sometimes I think in our culture, we preach too much like God is our grandfather instead of how Jesus taught us to pray and how we should view God as our father. There's a difference between grandpa love and fatherly love, right? And I know there's, there's, you know, every, every grandpa and dad is different, but in general, in my family, the, the, the grandpa, you know, 
really makes it all about the kid. Uh, the grandpa, the grandparents uh, pump the kids full of sugar and then drop them off with the parents to have to deal with the fallout of that, right? Uh, I know my grandpa, my dad's dad, he would come out to California once a year uh, to visit us, usually once a year. And when he came, I knew I could go pick out the most expensive basketball shoe I could find in town. The rest of the year, it was clearance aisle. It was, you know, play it again sports. But when Papa came, it was like, let's go to the case, the one that's locked up that no one can get to, because that's what my grandpa is going to buy me. Now listen, I think in our culture, we sometimes view God's love too much like a, a grandpa love, like it's all about us. He just wants us to be happy and healthy and just, just really be consumed with us. But no, Jesus, he, he taught us that God is our father. And there is a tender, compassionate, fatherly love there. But I know as a father, I sometimes put my boys in uncomfortable situations so that they grow, so that they become stronger, so that they're more prepared for the future. I, I tenderly and, 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 and intimately love my boys, but you know what? Sometimes that love looks like hurting their arm as I, jank the, as, as I, as I you know, jerk them out from oncoming traffic in the road. They think, wow, that, that hurt, Dad. Yeah, it was saving you from oncoming traffic. Our God does love us, but it's a fatherly love, and he disciplines those he loves, and he sometimes does put us in painful circumstances for his glory and for our good. Note the severity of God. He does discipline those he loves, but let me repeat that again. He disciplines those he loves. But now an aspect of the severity of God, it goes even a step further because then there are those who will continue in unbelief. There are those who will continue in defiant and permanent unbelief. And he does at some point then turn them over to their desires. He does at some point turn some people over to the lust of their hearts. And so Paul realizes that upon hearing the glorious news that the Gentiles have been grafted into the people of God, that now we could be prone to be prideful and take for granted our salvation just like the Jews had. And so we must hear this warning, church. We are not entitled to life and salvation because of the family we were born into or because of the church we are a part of or because of our past service and good deeds for the Lord. No, we are a people who were not only chosen by grace through faith, but we are a people God is keeping by grace through faith. Faith is the means by which God is keeping his people. Now, I do believe true believers will keep believing Therefore, keep believing and do not become proud. This is what many religious people are prone to, to becoming prideful. 
We've been eating at the Lord's table for so long that we can start to think that we're entitled to it. Gentiles do not be arrogant or look down upon one another or the Jews, and Jews should not be arrogant or look down upon the Gentiles. Both must see their daily need for Jesus. Both must see their daily need for Jesus. Each and every one of us must see our daily need for Jesus and see that in Christ we are being brought together in one body, one family tree, one people of God, one holy temple in the Lord. The only way a Christian, whether Jew or Gentile, perseveres till the end is by continuing to live by faith in Jesus Christ. We must continue to humbly trust God in all things. And therefore, we must recognize that pride will keep trying to spring up in our lives. And this will be a hindrance and an enemy to our faith. We should have a healthy fear of pride springing up in our hearts, church. Do not become proud. Pride will weaken our faith. Pride, like we learned last week, will blind us to the faithfulness of God, and therefore pride will weaken our faith. And therefore our God is so good and kind to send plenty of things our way to humble us. Isn't God good and kind to do that? Now, I know some of you are thinking, hey, God, I've got the point. You've sent plenty to humble me. I don't need any more. But God is good and kind to send things our way to humble us because this is how he is keeping us. This is how he is holding us fast. You must recognize these things in your life that serve to humble you as one of the ways that our Heavenly Father is loving you and keeping you and holding you fast. Because, listen, if He's humbling you, then He's killing your pride and He's strengthening your faith. And if He's strengthening your faith, He's preserving your faith. And if He's preserving your faith, you will persevere in the faith. Therefore, praise God when He humbles us. Praise God when he humbles us. It is how he is keeping us. And so do not avoid these opportunities that God sends your way to be humbled. But instead, lean into them. And as God gives opportunities to be, for you to be humbled, you humble yourselves. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And let's leave that up on the screen for a few minutes here. This is our only hope of humility. It is to see and behold the mighty hand of God. Our God, who has a mighty hand, who is true to his word and to his people through both his kindness and his severity. This mighty hand of God who can take the unbelief of many of the Jews and can work it for the blessing of the Gentiles. Who can take the joy of Jesus and the Gentiles and work it to bring about the revival of the Jews. 
who can take a widespread revival of the Jews and work it to be a blessing to the entire world. I mean, how great is our God? See his kindness and his severity. See his mighty hand. And humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. However mighty you think God's hand is, I'm telling you, it's mightier than you thought it was when you walked in. See his kindness and his severity. But church, let me tell you where we ultimately see his kindness and severity. We ultimately see God's kindness and severity on the cross. Where Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, willingly came to earth and put on flesh out of his kindness and goodness. He took the severity of God that our sins deserved. He took it upon himself so that you and I, who deserve to eat our own cooking, can now look to him and through him be grafted into this glorious family tree who God will be faithful to, to the very end. See the mighty hand of God and be strengthened through being humbled. See the faithfulness of God to our family tree. God has chosen a people for himself by grace through faith, and God is keeping for himself a people by grace through faith. Therefore, keep humbly trusting God in all things. Through faith in Christ, we are a part of a glorious family tree. Let's pray.